the reason that I wanted to have this conversation with you this evening, Liz, was with regards to the, the value problem, which is the uh, work group, the special interest work group that Mark Badeau and I formed probably a couple of months ago now. And it's very interesting. This is, this is very much on the kind of applied end of, uh, of, of artificial life. But certainly, I think in terms of the, the long-term benefit and uh, collaborative interest of, of artificial life as it moves forward, uh, within academia, within industry, and, and potentially also the um, somewhat vibrant, somewhat communicative, a hobbyist community. The idea of the value problem has been stated in previous bio lives, but what's your own particular perspective of the value problem as it associates with artificial life? Yeah, I guess I would say right off the bat that I don't have any um, solutions to propose, um, at least at this time, but... As I understand it, the value problem from what I've been reading on the Wikipedia work, work group and some of the literature, the value, half of the value problem is that, um, you know, artificial life creations or inventions are kind of leaking into the larger technological world and they're not, um, you know, being given due, um, you know, uh, I guess, value of, of where they came from. So... That's that problem. But on the academic side, I guess the problem is that artificial life is still considered such an outlier, um, very fringe. People who are interested in it are very interested in it, like myself. And then the majority of, um, and this was, of course, the, the fundamental message in that, the philosophy paper that I wrote about artificial life, is that the majority of people who I think would be interested in artificial life, philosophers of biology and philosophers of science and mind, um, don't really know it exists or they think it's just some kind of computing and, you know, computers have nothing to do with philosophy, so they, you know, or they don't get the link. Maybe people who work kind of on the fringe of cognitive science and artificial intelligence in their philosophy of mind classrooms are a little bit more open to it, a little bit more friendly to it. But um, I think the, the challenge in academia is just maybe garnering some sort of recognition for it or some sort of um, respect for it. Because I know in my own personal experience when I was in graduate school and writing these papers and going to the Artificial Life um, Conference in England a few years ago, the the warning was sort of, you know, you as a philosopher, you can't make a career in this. You know, don't think that you're going to get a job in this or a career in this because it's very sort of fringe-oriented. And I understand why that's the case. I mean, it's not traditional philosophy, and you have to really make a strong case for why philosophers should pay attention to this stuff. But um, I, I think it, it's one of these things that, and this is not really a happy solution, but it's one of these things where, you know, time will tell. It takes time. Um, this philosopher of science who I mentioned a few minutes ago uh, in Germany, he and I got in touch over a completely different paper that I'm writing in um, biosemiotics. But when, when I started looking at his work and he started looking at mine, we realized, oh, we've both written papers on artificial life, and isn't that exciting because we're two philosophers of science, and that's really our you know, main sort of career path, but we've both written papers on this. And so... Now, we've been communicating back and forth and sharing papers and sharing, you know, contacts and whatnot. So I think that it's it's happening slowly but surely. It's a very, you know, and I, I think that's why I like this idea that you've put together of the work group because there are all of us you know, kind of scattered all over and we might not know that even though we're philosophers, we're working in artificial life. We're each in our own little bubbles. So having some kind of um, communication board like this where we can get in touch and communicate is part of the solution. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess those are really my only thoughts on it because I don't have any solutions to propose beyond that right now. Certainly. And I think um, Mark Badeau provides an interesting example of uh, a philosopher, someone who's central in the artificial life community and also someone who has bridge the gap in some regard into industry. And it's yeah. interesting thinking of uh, artificial life in, in terms of kind of an applied philosophy context that can also be very useful in industry from, from what Mark has been able to do with, with Protocell. And I think the, 
my perspective with regards to the value problem is it, it goes down two possible routes. The first is that it is something which is fundamentally both a philosophical and an engineering problem at a kind of meta level, that there are a number of stakeholders, and you have described one of the groups of stakeholders quite explicitly with regards to uh, the philosophical community, but also really what what was interesting with regards to getting the course list was together was the number of different disciplines, and this is something that I've found also surveying uh, US courses that kind of vein into artificial life or at least have particular artificial life components, is that you would think it may exist in perhaps biology, may exist perhaps in computer science, but what you actually find is a, a number of different areas have either artificial life specific courses or will teach aspects of artificial life. And certainly, I mean, this, this mirrors um, Dick's experience with regards to his book, Divine Action, Natural Selection. Certainly, as I read Divine Action, Natural Selection, it, it struck me that this could touched on a, a wide variety of areas. And I think there's potential for a similar kind of book on artificial life that could have an impact both for uh, the philosophical community, aspects of the biological community, obviously, um, the, the computational community. I think there's the, the ability for artificial life to actually exist as a kind of smearing van over a number of uh, separate uh, intellectual disciplines has actually, as you've stated, kind of worked um, against artificial life up until now. But we are now in very pragmatic times, both with regards to circumstances in industry and also academia. And I think what's interesting, particularly with regards to the hobbyist community, is they're almost like the kind of, um, you know, dark age monks or, um, you know, in terms of maintaining aspects of this and then percolating it back out into the uh, academic community. You mentioned Artificial Life 11 as being a, a real meeting of the minds. And certainly the thing that interested me, I didn't actually attend Artificial Life 11, but the thing that interested me was Jamie Matthews. We had a kind of reporter on the ground who was doing his master's at the time. And he described a situation where probably about two-thirds of the folk that were there were actually students. And I think that's what really interests me with regards to the potential of the artificial life community to impact on a variety of students that are currently moving not only into academia but also into industry. And I think this is a, another interesting point. So returning to this idea of, of engineering the, the value problem, the second track that has occurred to me has always been with regards to do we have, just within the potential of the group that we've assembled either in Biota or the International Society of Artificial Life or even the people that we've brought in with the work group, in this assembled group, do we have all the right aspects to actually do what we need to move artificial life forward? And certainly my initial thinking in terms of engineering the value problem, identifying the initial stakeholders, some of these are historical figures that you identify with people like Tom Ray, um, contemporary figures, the, the Avida folk, a wide variety of the folk that participate in both life. But are we missing certain components to move the value problem forward or does it actually exist in the community as we have it? And I think this is a, an open question. Dick, you've been surveying the artificial life community for... Uh, what, at least a decade and a half now. What is your own view with regards to how the community has evolved and, and particularly in perspective of the, of the value problem? Well, I think your premise there is not correct. Uh, I have had confrontations with the artificial life community, but uh, I wouldn't say I've surveyed it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm really, uh, let's put it this way, uh, I, I see that there's a, there seems to be some sort of general division between uh, the uh, academic artificial life community and the, the non-academic. And uh, my familiarity, to be honest, is mostly with the non-academic. I've had uh, uh, I've been rebuffed by the academic, and, uh, and uh, I actually tried to publish a paper in Artificial Life, uh, which was a mild critique of a paper uh, uh, in that journal, and uh, uh, they uh, expressed no interest in it, so I put it in an Italian theoretical biology journal. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure they're prepared for dialogue. Well, they probably gave it to Dawkins to review, so uh, he's, he's still oh, on the no. review committee. I don't know. It wasn't rejected that way, it seemed to be rejected that they didn't want to upset the people who wrote the article. 
<laughs> Fair enough. I mean, the important point with regards to the hobbyist community is that a, a lot of the folks in the hobbyist community, I think of Jeffrey Ventrella and John Klein in particular, are, are ex-academics in some, in some real life. And what interests me with regards to the value problem and particularly this idea of the being representative stakeholders is a number of the stakeholders are actually ex-academics and what they have learned from moving from academia into industry probably needs to needs to be used to to the benefit of the broader artificial life community and in some regard in, in solving the value problem. And ironically, I mean, we have people like Larry Yeager as well who've moved from industry for a majority of their life back into academia. So I think we have yeah. an interesting... I, I think Liz's point about trying to make a case to get this stuff acceptable uh, is sort of germane. Uh, in a way, one shouldn't have to make the case to make it acceptable. Uh, one's peers are usually behind oneself, and trying to bring them up uh, uh, is, uh, is not exactly the kind of uh, diapering I'd like to do. Uh, Certainly. I, I agree you know, entirely. I, I guess... Think I, I guess the question is whether whether we need whether whether we and this is a, a perennial bias life topic as well whether we need a, a kind of collection similar to Margaret A. Bowden's and certainly a number of the books that inspired the contemporary um, at least hobbyist if not academic artificial life community or whether we can do it through firstly as, as Liz noted this idea of, of going back and getting aspects of the artificial life community that he used externally recognized I mean w w your view with regards to bookstick is, is is pretty diverse do you think the artificial life community is in need of some uh, some solid collections at this stage uh, well, I think it's in need, you know, we've identified one of the central problems of artificial life, and that is it has not succeeded in imitating the, uh, uh, how shall I say, the apparent unending uh, ability of real evolution to uh, uh, create greater complexity, uh, one on top of the other, but also to exploit uh, phenomena in the world which uh, uh, can be quite unexpected. Uh, so, the uh, in a sense, I think artificial life is is at a very primitive stage right now. Uh, I mean, if you take the uh, the Avita experiment, for example, it seems that it, they had one single goal. Uh, I haven't read the original papers, so I'm going to have to get into them. But it, it, from Liz's description, they had one single goal which is this most complex function, EQU. Uh, now, uh, in real life, uh, in the evolution of real life, there is no single goal, and once one goal is achieved by organisms, you then find other goals keep coming up and get achieved. Now, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, that's probably putting it the wrong way, but the accomplishment of greater complexity keeps going on. And uh, uh, I don't see most artificial life simulations act more like uh, optimization programs. Once an optimum is achieved, they don't create a goal of getting to another optimum in another space. Uh, so well, let's, they, let's use two counterexamples to that, Dick, because th these kind of statements are, are often recited by truisms, and I always I always try to. Let's, oh, okay. let's, sure. let's use Larry Yeager's um, Polyworld as an example. Now, obviously, there are, there are computational constraints, and Larry is moving through those. So there, there is some evolution of code based purely on computational constraints. But the kind of stuff that comes out of uh, artificial life as intelligent agent in a simulation, oftentimes, in, well, in my own experience with mobile light, mass extinction, uh, various aspects of kind of novel uh, hierarchical groups. I mean, these kind of things come out of Noble Ape, and also Larry is experiencing these things with Polyworld. The kind of constraints that you encounter uh, with these kind of simulations are distinctly different than Golly, for example, or to a certain extent of the maybe less so with something like Framsticks. So there are artificial life simulations that aren't, uh, well, that, that reach greater boundaries and greater novelty. But the constraints that you find, which Tom Ray found fundamentally with Tierra early on, uh, relate to processing. The beauty of contemporary processing is, as I, as I said in, in your book, 
that we are now constrained by our own mathematical and fundamentally philosophical concepts about how we construct artificial life. And I think the dialogue associated with that is, is in its infancy, but is slowly starting up perhaps the potential of simulation science. But I think there are artificial life simulations which aren't uh, uh, classically constrained in the ways that things like Avida and Tierra were. Um, it's just a matter of actually exploring these, these simulations and perhaps even doing um, primary research and, and finding uh, and documenting the novelty individually. I mean, this is the problem fundamentally that Bruce Damer will encounter eventually with the Evo grid is that these kind of simulations are so vast that you either need intelligent search algorithms to actually go through and find the, the interesting parts and then focus on them. All you need, as I've experienced with Noble Ape and Larry has experienced with Polyworld, a diversity of users the world over who email you with regards to these eccentricities. I think of a, a, a medical doctor in the Boston area who has been running Noble Ape pretty solidly for the past six years and describes in elaborate detail how the Noble Apes that in his particular simulations have created societies around weather movements and also how he's tracked uh, various genetic mutations. And I think the beauty of of a lot of these more open artificial life simulations, the same is true with, with Larry Agus' Polyworld, is that the uh, complexity that comes out of them actually requires the human observers to start documenting and writing and, and talking about these things in order to make more of this um, part of the kind of ongoing uh, dialogue, and particularly in academia. I mean, Larry Agus has produced a series of papers, and thankfully now he has a relatively vibrant and useful community that are also documenting these things back into academia. I've been uh, less successful doing that with Noble 8, but there is certainly a large hobbyist user base that uses Noble 8. So I think the simulations exist out there that do these kind of things. That isn't specifically the problem. The problem is really meshing the uh, discoveries, insights, or perhaps observations of the uh, these simulations back into academia. And this is where people like Liz are, are ideally placed. I mean, it's, it's going to be an interesting problem how you actually describe these things going into the future. And there is certainly a substantial time delta between where we are as simulators and what is being described philosophically. And I think here of of Nick Bostrom et al. I mean, the, the understandings that the contemporary simulation community, this really goes outside artificial life in some regard, but the artificial life community is well placed in it. It's just not being properly documented or accounted for in, in contemporary uh, academia and philosophy in particular. And I think a lot of the wonder that the hobbyists and their users are seeing should in some regard translate to some part of this, you know, broader... <laughs> I don't want to use the term revolution, but at least the, what emerges out of solving some aspect of the value problem to at least communicate this to a broader community. I mean, Liz, as I described this to you, if you imagine being an artificial life simulator like Larry Yeager, for example, who had a, a long history in physics, he worked at Apple, he worked on films, his background is, is a voluminous... Um, fluid flow, compressible fluid theory, mathematical simulations, and then he comes to artificial life. And the artificial life simulations that came out, um, Polyworld in particular, certainly doesn't, well, was initially constrained by computational power and memory use, but now it's expanding into something which is more about uh, modeling uh, various cognitive behaviors, various abstract AI ideas of intelligence and metrics and these kind of things. How do you communicate this back to the to the philosophical community, the kind of folk that you're talking to that are sceptical that this thing called artificial life could have any impact <laughs> on the philosophy of, you know, of, of cognition? Is, is that a question for me? That's a question for you. How? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I think that um, the key is to basically bend a friendly ear. So... I, I am sympathetic to Dick's position that it is hard to, um, you know, get these, um, incur some sort of empathy for these insights in artificial life in the academic community. But I, um, you know, as much as I've been told, well, that's not the philosophy or I don't understand the philosophical importance, there, for all of those people, there were just as many who were interested and who knew nothing about it but were fascinated to learn more. And for whatever reason, when this paper, my recent paper on artificial life, was sent to this 
biology and philosophy journal, they were actually very open to it. I mean, um, they right off the bat said, you know, we could use a paper like this. This is the kind of paper that we need for this journal. And I think the reason is because there aren't too many philosophers writing about artificial life. And of course, there's Mark Bedeau, but for instance, if he has never sent one of his papers to this particular journal, this journal's response was, yeah, this is a paper we could use. Our readers need to know something about artificial life. So I, w I got a really warm reception to the paper and, of course, had to revise it and everything after that fact. But the initial reception was was warm and was welcoming. So that's a good sign. And I think um, another key is basically speaking the philosopher's language. So, you know, philosophers uh, of science who do, for instance, philosophy of physics, and you really have to know the mathematics, and they really do know the mathematics, they're comfortable with talking about computer science and math and um, more technical issues. But philosophers who do something completely different, aesthetics or ethics, or they don't even, they wouldn't necessarily know that there's anything in artificial life that they could understand or that they could be interested in. And I think it's basically speaking their language. I mean, I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I'm sure that there are, um, you know, artificial life programs that would give some insight into conceptual, non-scientific philosophy, conceptual philosophical questions. And it would just be, it would take somebody um, to be able to put it into their language and say, this is the significance, this is why it's important, you know, sort of like, a, I don't know, an ambassador for artificial life. And I think that there is interest out there. It's just a matter of, you're right, kind of pulling it all together, pulling all the forces together, because it is Scattered. From my own background, this is exactly where I came from developing no Lape. I was studying uh, physics and philosophy in Australia, and I had a particularly unsympathetic philosophy department to the ideas of any component, particularly of their metaphysics coursework, that could actually be computer simulated, and from that came no Lape. Ironically, one of the chief instigators, who was a contemporary of mine at the time, is now at Oxford University working with Nick Bostrom um, directly. Um, so it's one of these kind of great ironies that uh, I've moved into relative obscurity and um, so, some aspect of, uh, you know, what have you here in the U.S., whereas he is not really instigating sufficiently with the likes of Bostrom. But I think the, the interesting point here is actually rephrasing these. Um, the idea of the philosophical ambassador is very interesting because really what you need in order to move into something like philosophy and a wide variety of other academic disciplines is sympathetic academics that actually, um, you know, play, uh, play Dr. Livingston fundamentally in terms of wandering into the wilds of things like artificial life and, and gathering the, the necessary information. What's interesting in a historical context, particularly when you talk about something like Avida, is you're talking about what were the papers you surveyed? Were they kind of eight or nine years old now? Yeah. So you're, yeah, taking, you're taking a period of time which is, in an artificial life perspective, relatively historical and translating <laughs> that to modern philosophy. That's right. Whereas really, I think, what the, the, the core of the value problem, this was what was beautiful with regards to Margaret A. Bowden's work, was she went to, she went to what she saw as the, the kind of cutting points of the, of the time of artificial life and, and produced a, a very contemporary and very vibrant message that was immediately passed on to, to people such as myself in and, and Australia and folks all over the world, basically. So and I think the challenge currently is finding uh, people such as yourself who are willing to, uh, to come into the wilds of this kind of discussion on things like biota lives and then communicate this message back to, um, back to a, a philosophical audience. And it's interesting when you talk about um, for example, philosophers of science, philosophers of physics, mathematics, these kind of areas, because a lot of the stuff that's explored in artificial life, whilst it has kind of bends into these aspects, is really exploring more uh, fundamental kind of social, social evolution, the information theory kind of phenomena, yeah. which is really more part of almost, I mean, aesthetics is a good example of that in some in fundamental sense. I mean, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of artificial life art that really is exploring a lot of aesthetic theory currently. So I think there's a number of a number of possible um, 
possible ambassadors uh, that could wander into the artificial life community and, and discover some things that they could take back to the philosophical community. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think that um, there's clearly so much more in current artificial life that I'm unaware of, but I am absolutely confident that there's uh, there are projects going on in artificial life that would have relevance to lots of different subdisciplines in philosophy. My point was really just that artificial life being um, as connected as it is to computer science and, and basically requiring um, you know either soft implementation or hard implementation in robots, just that uh, that fact alone is enough to kind of turn off some philosophers. If they think that's you know that's computers, that's not philosophy, that's not what I do. This is what I do, and I'm not saying that that this is even a majority of philosophers. I think that that is that's a prevailing attitude amongst some of the philosophical community that it's an inherently different sort of project that has nothing to do with philosophy. I think, well, and that, that's unfortunate, but I think that that's true. And um, and a question that I have too is. Of course, I'm thinking in terms of philosophy because that's my field, but I, I haven't done any sort of um, research to see are there people in you know psychology, economics, mainstream academic departments who are actively incorporating insights from artificial life into their own research. Do you know? So certainly my mind um, flits to uh, Dr. Paul Johnson, who I believe... I want to say that he's in New Mexico, but he could be in Arizona. He's been a previous biolife participant in the field of, um, well, using swarm research in political science in particular. In terms of economics, I was published last year in a book called uh, Nature Inspired Informatics, and that contained a number of economists that were using aspects of artificial life in uh, in, in modeling um, uh, aspects of, of economics. And it was actually quite fascinating um, reading their, their particular papers because it gave me a sense that people were actually starting to apply some of the small aspects of artificial life into these kind of questions. I think it's, it's really a time problem in terms of getting what is going on currently out to all these, these possible, um, possible, uh, Possible folk, but with regards to actually how you present it to people that may not necessarily be interested. When I was naive and initially developing Noble Ape, I always thought that the visualization component would be a good way to describe things. So I sat down in front of uh, uh, philosophers and showed them the cognitive simulation of Noble Ape and tried to show them the basic principles, and you're exactly right. The immediate response was that's computers and uh, a few of their favorite, you know, most hated philosophers at the time and said, well, that's obviously related to so-and-so's work. And I think that's an interesting problem with regards to artificial life simulation in particular is that so much of it is visual. It's aesthetic, which is why it works as a hobbyist community and also a, a large kind of hobbyist user base in that regard. But translating that into into something which uh, philosophers in particular can pick up does require a particular group of academics that are willing to actually spend time, as you appear to have done with regards to the uh, Avita folk at least, um, in terms of translating this in some regard to something that uh, philosophers will, will be receptive to. The interesting idea is this idea of simulation science, and it's something that comes through by Adelaide's periodically, but I've always advocated, and I think this is the same with people who've appeared on previous Biodolives that talk about simulation science, that it is really, it, it has to have a philosophical aspect to it as well. And what's interesting with regards to the notion that we can actually get in, the, the, the broad definition of simulation science is that you have on one end theoretical science and on one end you have applied science and now you have people that are generating simulations to try and map theory onto onto application but within this simulation as artificial life practitioners know you actually get a greater degree of insight than than from either applied or, or theoretical aspect and there is a broader philosophy within that that is slowly percolating through so i think mm -hmm. there there are a number of there are a number of aspects here but it's really how we translate this into something that the various uh, communities, in your case, specifically the, the philosophical community, uh, is interested in. In terms of your surveying of artificial life, I've, I've met um, various students that have gone to um, uh, University of Colorado, predominantly the, the Boulder campus that 
from from uh, kind of ecology simulated biology perspective. Do you get a sense of these um, two schools in terms of being uh, potentially interested campuses for artificial life related discussion? You know, I don't know, and the reason is because I've only been at um, University of Colorado for this one past semester, and I'm teaching Introduction to Philosophy. It's, it, philosophy. So when and if, um, as I've mentioned to you at communication before, if, you know, a question comes up or an example comes up where artificial life as an explanation or as an example would be relevant, I'll use it, of course, in the classroom. But that has been my only exposure so far to the University of Colorado. And next semester when I'm teaching at Boulder, it may be um, a whole different uh, a thing. I'm not sure. One thing that comes to mind is the Boulder campus does have an astrobiology program um, where it, it's kind of like an interdisciplinary program where undergrads can specialize in it and graduates can get a certificate in astrobiology. And they kind of bring together courses from the natural sciences and maybe the social sciences too. And then I think I, they have an astrobiology uh, proper course that's part of it. And so um, it would be interesting to talk to them about are they interested in artificial life um, research methods as ways of exploring, you know, um, origins of life, evolution of life, um, other possible ways of life, you know, kind of Christopher Langton type thinking. So that's a possibility um, and, and one that I can think about when I'm there next semester. Okay, Tom? We have William Buckley on the call. William, as you listen in to the conversation, do you have any questions, any, any points you want to raise? Well, the, the only thing that I'm curious about, and of course I've missed a lot of the call, but um, is is wet artificial life. Uh, I've been paying a bit more attention to protocells recently, and it looks to me like there's an awful lot of activity in that particular area of the field. And so far I think what I've heard is primarily about computer science. Well, I mean, with Mark Badeau, with with his feet basically in both camps, I think it may be a matter, particularly as, as protocell has wound down, I think you might see a few papers at least coming from Mark relating to this subject. But Liz, as you're on the call, what's your own thinking with regards to wet artificial life? I know next to nothing about wet artificial life. Okay. It seems to me like it's it's not really right winding down. Now, maybe proto-life, the the project with Badeau and Norm Packard is. That's what I'm saying. But my reading of their book suggests that the Europeans are extremely interested in proceeding uh, much further than than what's really been done at, at Proto-Life. And, uh, and I'm seeing that that might really be the, the big area for development in the next 10 years, quite mm -hmm. frankly. Well, when we had when we had Mark Badeau on, and I put that question to him explicitly, he was he was a bit more conservative with regards to his timeline. I think if you follow the stuff that's going on at Flint, what interests me is what we don't see, which may certainly come through in Europe in terms of the. Um, I mean, Proto Life is a relatively open company. It, it, they produced a, a book or at least a collection of works. Um, and they have contributed a lot to the kind of public discourse associated with wet artificial life. What interests me is the wet artificial life practitioners that have contacted me who are part of either small startups that we haven't heard of or part of um, large pharma companies. And I think the reality is, is what we don't hear in wet artificial life, which may actually provide some very interesting and uh, quite kind of spin on the, on the, you know, t turn our heads and look to see something that has just appeared from nowhere, but it actually has been worked on for, uh, for a number of years coming from these quarters as well. Obviously, the folk who do contact me with regards to these aspects don't like to, uh, don't like to appear on Biosalive necessarily, but they... Some of them have at least promised that when they have public releases, they will come on. And my sense is exactly, you're exactly right. Whilst Mark Badeau and potentially the folk at Flint have relatively conservative timelines, it's probably what we don't hear about wet artificial life that's going to um, provide the, the points of interest in the you know, next five and ten years where we will really have to uh, 
leap our own thinking forward to what is actually released. So, I mean, is that your thinking as well, William? Uh, it's along those lines, but also, uh, you know, the Proto-Life Project itself, and I don't know that much about Flint, but um, it seems to me that there were a number of people who had similar projects they were working on. Luisi, I believe is his name, Pier Luigi Luisi. <laughs> um, his paper in the Protocells book is uh, particularly intriguing in suggestions of the type of uh, alternative approaches that might actually start to bear fruit. And it, I just have this sneaking feeling that uh, Protocells is, is just one approach and uh, and we will see a lot more other approaches. I mean, for a long time, we've gone through various iterations, like uh, like the RNA world and and work done down at UC San Diego and and uh, so forth. And it, it just it's beginning to build like a crescendo. That's what I'm seeing. Okay, Tom. Before we wind up, I'd like to get one more question in for Liz. Certainly. Okay. Uh, let me just read one more sentence from her paper. Uh, <laughs> okay. In Langton loop experiments, we do not yet fully understand the intricacies of the relationships between genotype and phenotype in organic organisms, and it is believed that by observing and manipulating the mechanisms that synthesize this relationship artificially, we will gain insight into the analogous mechanisms in the natural case. Now, I'd like to suggest that Liz could add a fifth category of artificial life, uh, which might come under the name of modeling, but that is that uh, if we create a simulation that, uh, that demonstrates the relationship between genotype and phenotype in a real organic organism, but now we have computer code which is doing that, it seems to me that that itself is a form of artificial life and, in fact, raises the question as to if the computer simulation does the same thing as the developing organism, then in, it, perhaps in some sense it is the same as the developing organism, and therefore the strong A-life hypothesis uh, prevails. Okay. Yeah, I follow you. I'm wondering what, what is the extra category that you would suggest I add? Simulations that try to imitate real organic organisms. Oh, okay. In every, de in every detail that seems relevant. I mean, yeah, of course, there's, uh, there's always some abstraction involved in modeling. But if a model does, I guess what I'm saying is if a model does and carries out the same processes as an organic organism, then in some sense it is the same and it is just as alive. Yeah. Yeah, I follow you. And so you're you are pushing the strong a life line then. The oh yeah, I, I, you see, I I don't think. Uh, well, look, I, let me put it in a very simple fashion. If you want to think in terms of mental processes, and that is, it is clear to me that you are an automaton. I'm not, but you are, and this is because we think that physics works and therefore ultimately will explain everything, and therefore the distinction between you as an automaton or a robot as an automaton is, is not important. That, In other words, if there is no Elan Vital, then what's the difference between a real thing and a simulation of the real thing? Yeah. Yeah, because I tell I, I, I you. I, I think that that's... I'm sorry, am I cutting you off? Did you have more well, no, I mean, you know, and if you want to make, if you insist on something being bodied, so you put the simulation in a robot, and then you really uh, have blurred the lines. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So theoretically, I do agree with you. If you have a model that can model every intricacy of its subject matter, then you would have to say the subject matter and the the model are equivalent. I agree with you. I think that um, to my knowledge, or at least to my understanding, that hasn't yet been done. So although Langton loops provide an interesting model of something that can copy itself and produce something new independent of itself, mm -hmm. it is, of course, a highly specialized, highly simplified model because Langton loops are simpler than any known 
biological organism. So it's a highly specialized, highly idealized model. And that's how so much of science works. So it's not to discredit the model, in this case the Langton loops, and say that they're um, not useful. They are very useful and, and you know, have the potential to provide a lot of insight. But we haven't yet made a model, um, to my knowledge, in artificial life that captures all of the intricacies of a biological organism. So no, that's, I guess, that's correct. But I'm yeah. saying that with the uh, fast increasing speed of computers, the, comp the computer limitations themselves are being lifted uh, considerably. And so we can proceed with the program of trying to simulate real organisms. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is that this gives a fifth, relation, a fifth category of artificial life, which is that simulation which it does what an organism does. What yeah. you're talking about is the, the definition of equivalence. How do you define yeah. equivalence? And, and I, I put it simply, if a robot uh, can kill me the same way a wild animal can, uh, I don't care what the, whether it's alive or not. Yeah, I, I'll agree with you there. It, it's, uh, you know, the, the other way I like to describe it is, does it really matter what the substrate is? And most biologists now will agree that it doesn't matter what the substrate is. Well, you know, I, I think that's a good working hypothesis. I'm not completely convinced that, that it will come out that way, but I think what may result from such a program is an understanding uh, that... Uh, Physics is not exactly what we are, what the current paradigm is, and there's a hint of this in Laughlin's uh, Laughlin's work uh, on uh, uh, well alternatives to uh, an alternative view of physics and whatnot. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, he doesn't know much biology, so there's no there's no dis significant discussion at all in his books that I've found so far uh, on biology. The only thing I, I would want to add about that is, um, you know, I, I, I'm skeptical about that conclusion too. That in in the living a living model that captured all the, or sorry, an artificial model that captured all the intricacies of the living system, you would have two equivalent systems. Because I don't buy that argument in the case of artificial intelligence. And so, um, would you consider the financial system to be artificially intelligent, Liz? Does it exist today? The financial system? Mm, no. I mean, I, I think of the, the people as, you know, the intelligent nodes in that system, but I don't think of the system itself as independently intelligent. So in terms of the fact that it's independently automated, though, do you think of that as a form of intelligence? Of what? Sorry? In, in terms of the fact that it's independently automated, do you oh. think there is a kind of sub-intelligence there? Do you consider it intelligent? I, I don't personally, no. I think of the, the people who are, um, e even though it's a system, it's a human-created system, and we have lots of ways of grounding that in the human world with computers and um, paper trails and, uh, you know, numerical systems. So I don't see it uh, personally. This is just my intuition. I don't see it as an independently intelligent system, no. Because, I mean, certainly listening to the general discussion, my sense as an entity within the broader financial system is that I feel fundamentally simulated in that system. And what Dick is describing with regards to removing the living components, I can certainly see as simulators have done, economists have done currently with regards to the 1890s financial system and the 1920s financial system and even the 1980s financial system. This can be simulated in such a way that the humans don't need to exist. So, I mean, I think when one starts making claims with regards to computational systems intelligence and what is existing in contemporary simulation, the simulations do exist in reality. It's just a matter of perhaps understanding the mathematics, the nature of the systems, and what they actually mean in a, in a kind of human versus machine context. So certainly all that is described, and particularly with regards to, you know, the potential of being killed by a machine or being killed by an animal. I mean, if you've ever had, uh, if you've ever had a, a primary financial institution either 
take or um, you know have you, have your um, finances captured in some way if you've ever had experiences of identity theft all these kind of experiences lend you to believe fundamentally that you in some level no longer exist as yourself and I think this is what we're describing what interests me in this discussion and particularly the biological perspective is we think of this very much in terms of what we are capable of doing in contemporary simulation looking at you know single-celled organisms and the idea of intelligence but these systems exist out there it's just a matter of mapping the ideas of simulation onto these systems and then into the philosophy fundamentally um, let me let me add a little point here consider the nature of human of human intelligence we got some feedback now. Um, the the point that I'm trying to make is: Are humans as a whole intelligent, or are the cells that build up the brain the source of intelligence? Mm-hmm. I mean, if if the argument is that our financial systems are not intelligent, then perhaps it is not the human himself who's intelligent or herself, but it is the brain cells that are the ultimate source of intelligence. Where does it lie? Yeah. Well, that's a good philosophical question. I mean, where is the intelligence? And philosophers talk about this question all the time. Is there some magic threshold where simple organisms are not intelligent and then at some point complex organisms and certainly humans are? And What is that magic threshold? But I think that, and, and Dick and I have discussed this over email, in fact, recently, I think that it's a mistake to reify conceptual systems as independently existing entities. This is a a Cartesian-type error to say the financial system... I mean, a system, a financial system is something that that is... uh, It's a a socially agreed-upon system that we use um, a particular kind of symbols and we manipulate them in a certain way. How do you stop it? How do you stop it? If it's a system, it has to be able to be stopped in some way. And if it's a system that is in some way instantiated and controlled by humans, then it needs Mm -hmm. to be a way that humans can either restart it and stop it. And the contemporary financial system does not exist in this realm. Like the road system, these are systems which exist beyond the realm of individual or even large collectives of humans. So when you start describing these things as being human-created, it's a way to be sympathetic to these systems, but it doesn't actually lend any way of understanding these systems and how we can use the knowledge that we've gained in kind of simulation sense, which ultimately economists are using as well, in a broader understanding of these systems. It seems to be a disconnect in the in the perception of the systems, which I think doesn't really connect with a broader community either. Yeah. The suggestion is that there are two thresholds, one above which intelligence appears and one below which intelligence is contained. Mm-hmm. That's the argument I'm hearing. That that, uh, that we start off with individual cells, and when you get a certain number of them, a certain organization of them, that's the threshold at which intelligence appears. But then if you have higher order systems above that, there's some kind of threshold at which the intelligence disappears. Yeah, that's one way of putting it. And and I'm I'm not so much asserting an argument here, really, as just um, saying that I think it, it could be a category mistake to say... Um, because individual humans are intelligent, the abstract systems they create are also intelligent. I'm not. I'm not sure if that. I'm not convinced that that follows. But I'm not making an argument to the contrary. I'm just saying I'm not sure if that follows. Well, hopefully your continued participation in Biota Live might convince you otherwise, Liz. <laughs> So okay. I, think, I think this has been a beautiful conclusion to another year of Biota Live. And, and Liz, I want to thank you in particular for, for appearing um, this evening. And also, um, I welcome you on future Biota Lives to have discussions associated with the, the wide variety of directions we've taken the conversation this evening. William, as you came to the conversation late, do you have any, do you have any final question for Liz? No, no, that's fine. I, I've asked uh, the appropriate questions in chat, and as long as I can get a hold of some of these papers, I'd be thrilled to read them. And Dick, it's always a pleasure having you on the call. Similarly, do you have any final questions for Liz? Well, I, I, I think uh, it, it's a little amusing hearing hearing you two talk because uh, what you're complaining about is that we're out on the frontier, and it's very lonely out there. <laughs> and uh, 
what you would like to do is turn it into uh, a very neat suburban neighborhood with mowed lawns. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sorry. If you want to be on the frontier, it won't be there once it's mowed. <laughs> Are you talking to me or the group as a whole? I'm talking to all of you. I mean, basically, we're a bunch of loners who happen to be able to get together through this wonderful medium. Uh, but we're out in the frontier. It's kind of lonely. There are a few others out here. And uh, the whole business about the value and whatnot is a desire that it should all be nice mowed lawns. Well, I, I think what I'm looking for here is a kind of metropolitan expansion. I'll continue to wander to the fringes, but I'd like to think that people such as Liz were going to start developing condos in the area that I'm currently. <laughs> I, I understand, but it's much more fun out in the frontier. Even. I have to agree with you, but I'd like to think that the world, that we weren't like completely in the middle of nowhere. I mean, now you've been to now you've been to Victorville and. Uh, and Williams part of the world, you know exactly the notion of the kind of creeping Los Angeles as it kind of rolls over the hills. Well, I'm certainly, you know, certainly out past Barstow currently, but I'd like to think that uh, I'd like to think that things were actually rolling along, and it does require it does require some. Oh, they are rolling along, and what we're, I mean, those who explore the wilderness leave behind them paths which eventually get paved. Very much so. I'd like it if those paths would pave themselves. <laughs> no, it takes people to pave them so far. Now, maybe maybe artificial life will someday go into the wilderness by itself. And <laughs> <laughs> Developing systems, yes. <laughs> we ain't there yet. <laughs> well, next year we're going to be moving to a different day at least. I know Liz has problems with regards to Saturday morning, but I'm certainly sympathetic recording Saturday afternoon or early Saturday evening for the early part of next year. So BioLive as a format will be moving to Saturdays, but also it'll give us the opportunity to uh, communicate with a wide variety of folk in, in Europe and Australia and, and Asia. And I'd like to send a shout-out to Ryan Flanagan in particular, who's in Japan currently listening in and participating in the chat. Because really the artificial life community is an international community, and I'd like to think the biota community is a surveying of that, was also an international community. And Liz, I'd like to thank you in particular for bringing a new voice, new insight, and new ideas into the biota live discussion. And I look forward to talking to you next year. Well, thank you very much, Tom. It was a pleasure, and I look forward to you visiting Biota Live again. Wonderful. And William and Dick, I know I can't get rid of you two, so <laughs> I'm stuck with you both. You have to hang up on me, I guess. <laughs> Good night to both of you, and Happy New Year to all. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Thanks for doing this, Tom. See you. Bye-bye.